god Dorothy Day once said, the keenness and intensity of love brings with it suffering, of course, but joy too, because it is a foretaste of heaven. Welcome to the 61st episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because while it's true that love brings with it suffering, it's also true that it brings us as close as we can get to the divine. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dimpna's Mentions. First up, I received this question that I thought would be interesting to explore. Is it okay to go to therapy uh, to a therapist who practices hypnotherapy, especially for goals like quitting smoking? You know, I get a lot of questions similar to this, ones that focus on should a practicing Catholic involve themselves with X mental health treatment, everything from mindfulness exercises to this one on hypnotherapy. And I'm always happy to delve into them because I think it helps to dispel a lot of concerns and myths. Uh, with what these therapeutic treatment modalities are actually like. In this case, it's important to review what hypnosis and therefore hypnotherapy, which is basically hypnosis with a goal of helping someone with their mental and emotional health, actually is. And wellnessinstitute.org helps us out here. The idea that hypnotists can take over the mind of their subjects and control their actions is, of course, an entirely media-driven myth. In the trance state, you control all of your actions, you can hear everything around you, and you cannot be forced to do something against your will. Hypnosis actually is, one, a deep state of relaxation, two, hyper-focus and concentration, and three, increased suggestibility. If that sounds commonplace, it's because it is. Most of us go in and out of trance states regularly. If you've ever zoned out on your daily commute, fell into memories while listening to music, or found yourself immersed in the world of a book or a movie, boom. You've been in the trance state. So hypnotherapy is basically helping one to enter into this state through relaxation techniques and slowing everything down and then helping you get at some of those thoughts or memories that are maybe less accessible when you're not in this super calm state. Here's some more from Wellness Institute. With hypnosis, you might help someone stop smoking by suggesting the taste or smell of cigarettes is worse than it actually is. But a hypnotherapist can also use age regression to examine the impulse that fuels the client's habit and discover old conclusions and behaviors. The healing will take place when the client creates new conclusions about old memories and chooses new behaviors rather than smoking. So again, as always, we have to look at our personalities to see if a specific therapeutic approach will work for us. If we feel comfortable with it and think hypnotherapy would work, we should feel free to go for it. If we feel like it kind of sounds weird and something that would make us uncomfortable, it's probably not for us. On to the next topic, another question I received I thought would be good for a lot of listeners. Is there such a thing uh, as sundowners but for depression? Why do I always get sadder at night even if my activities look similar to what I'm doing during the day? So for those who may not know, sundowners is a term commonly used in dementia care, and it involves a pattern of sadness, agitation, fear, delusions, hallucinations that occur in dementia patients in the late afternoon, evening, and at night. 
As to if this may be something that happens in depression, let's get into it. A lot of us feel like our depression and anxiety tends to kick off worse at night, leading to difficulty sleeping, feeling isolated, and even hopelessness as it gets closer to bedtime. And there are a couple of reasons why this might be the case. Let's look at verywellmind.com for more. So rumination is the first reason why this might be happening. Not surprisingly, you tend to be more prone to rumination when you're alone and free from distraction, which tends to be at night for most of us. Fatigue at the end of the day can also make us more prone prone to feeling down. Though rumination is normal, it can be extremely unhealthy, particularly if it's causing worsening depression or anxiety. The next reason might be nighttime light exposure. There have been numerous studies on the link between exposure to light at night and depression. One study published in the American Journal of Epidemiology showed a correlation between low-level bedroom light uh, exposure during sleep and developing depression symptoms in elderly adults. And this risk could be even higher for young adults since their eyes are more sensitive. And finally, circadian rhythm disruption might have something to do with this. Multiple studies have shown that when your circadian rhythm or internal sleep clock is disrupted, your risk of developing depression or worsening symptoms is higher. In general, it's best to be awake and active during the day and make sure you get the best quality of sleep you can at night. So some ideas for coping with this depression sundowners, as we're calling it, is if it's uh, if it's something that you've noticed, include working on creating more positive thoughts through writing or artwork or prayer, trying to focus on problem-solving negative events instead of ruminating on the why me kind of thinking and practicing good sleep hygiene. Google it, look into what sounds good to you, and give those things a try. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to share a little bit about St. Louis Martin. Born in 1823 in Bordeaux, France, Louis Martin is best known as being the father of five nuns, including St. Therese of Lisieux. He and his wife Zelie were canonized in 2015, and they have found their way into the hearts of many Catholics down through the years. What I want to focus on today, however, is the lesser-known story about St. Louis being confined to a mental health asylum. LouisandZellieMartin.org provides some details. Since 1887, Louis Martin had given some signs of illness that worried his family. Family. In November of 1887, during the pilgrimage to Rome, Therese had noticed that he was tired more easily than usual. After Therese entered Carmel in April of 1888, his sickness presented more frequently. In May and June of 88, he tried to put his affairs in order. He wanted to secure the future of his daughters and to purchase their family home in Lisieux, where uh, they had just been leasing. Preoccupied with the desire to become a hermit, he suddenly disappeared from their home in June of 88 and was found four days later at La Havre. I'm sure that the pronunciation is just not here. You know, I'm Irish-American. For Therese's reception of the habit on January January 10th, 1889, Louis was perfectly lucid. He could enjoy what Therese called his, quote, last feast on earth. But scarcely a month later, a crisis suddenly erupted. He began to suffer from hallucinations, imagining that he was seeing slaughter and military battles and hearing the sounds of drums and cannons. An attempted robbery at Lisieux made things worse, and he began to carry a revolver to defend the family. Seeing the gun, the family thought it was safest to have him admitted that same day to the nearby large mental hospital or asylum at Cain. The very name of this institution, the Good Savior, evoked mixed feelings of irony and fear throughout the whole region. 
Louis believed that he was going on an outing, but a doctor signed the certificate, noting that Louis had been placed in the hospital at the request of his family, who could arrange for his release whenever they liked. The institution had 1,700 patients, and Louis was known as inmate number 14449. His illness was called cerebral arteriosclerosis, possibly a form of Alzheimer's. Louis was placed in a section called St. Joseph among 500 men who were tranquil and semi-tranquil by designation, and he would remain in the asylum for more than three years. I find this story to be both heartbreaking and hopeful. There's still so much stigma around hospitalization for mental and cognitive health, and just knowing that St. Louis Martin experienced this reminds me that God is always with us, always has a plan for us, and always brings good out of all things for those who love him. We like to close this part of the podcast out with a prayer. St. Louis, along with Zelie, you filled your household with such love that it produced saints, but even great piety does not spare us from loss and sadness that accompanies it. With those who mourn and grieve, we say, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. O Lord, through the inter intercession of St. Louis Martin, lift up those who are suffering from depression, anxiety, dementia, and other mental problems, and lead them out of the darkness and into your light. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Courtney gets us started. Can you talk a little bit about internal family systems therapy and how accurate it is? I have a sibling who's been looking into it and had one therapy session in this method. How does it work? Thanks, Courtney. Let's start by praying for everyone reaching out for therapy, everyone finding the strength to reach out for the help, and that they may find what they need when they're reaching out for help, uh, in addition to having helpful support from family and friends. Let's go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. We love to start with definitions around here. So internal family systems therapy was developed by Richard Schwartz in, in the 1980s. And we'll look at psychology today to help us stay on track here. Internal family systems is an approach to psychotherapy that identifies and addresses multiple sub-personalities or families within each person's mental system. These sub-personalities consist of wounded parts and painful emotions such as anger and shame and parts that try to control and protect that person from the pain or the wounded parts. The sub personalities are often in conflict with each other and with one's core self, a concept that describes the confident, compassionate whole person that is the core of every individual. IFS focuses on healing the wounded parts and restoring mental balance and harmony by changing the dynamics that create discord among the subpersonalities and the core self. IFS is talk therapy in which you work with a therapist to identify and understand the specific subpersonalities that make up your internal mental system. Once you identify these parts, the therapist will help you to acknowledge your feelings about these suppressed emotions, learn how to release these feelings so you are freer to address the actual problems, and ultimately find more positive ways to manage conflicts on your own. The therapist may suggest certain tools to help you do this, such as relaxation exercises, visualization, keeping a journal, and creating a chart that illustrates 
is the relationship between self and the different parts of you. So back to me. It's uh, been known to work well with trauma, couples therapy, and fighting that inner critic that tells us how bad we are all the time. Now, on the flip side, to be fair, critics of the modality uh, have pointed out that the method of self-discovery can take extensive time and effort and there's really no empirical data comparing IFS to other proven methods. So there have been no follow-up studies to investigate the long-term success of IFS. So again, like with all of these discussions, I like to remind everyone that the therapeutic modality that will work best for you is the one that lines up best with your personality and way of thinking about yourself and the world. If this modality sounds like something that makes sense to you, by all means, seek out a therapist that can help you with it. But if the explanation doesn't really line up with your view of yourself, it's probably best that you keep looking for another modality that clicks. Olivia is up next. I've been feeling incredibly anxious about the upcoming presidential election, as well as the current political climate. I've become what almost feels like addicted to watching the news. Watching the news makes me anxious, but removing myself from it makes me really anxious. I feel like I'm missing things and need to be updated at all times. It's keeping me from getting my actual work done and spending time with my family. The election will, like, will likely extend beyond election day, and even when that's over, I fear that my anxiety won't subside. How can I stay updated without obsessing over every single tiny detail? And what do I do when I pull myself away but continue to feel anxious? Well, let's start by praying for Olivia and everyone feeling a similar anxiety as they observe our nation's political situation. Let's pray for peace in the hearts of all of us and for peace in our world. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. First off, it's always nice to hear that you aren't alone, and if social media and my own personal self-reflection tells me anything, it's that you most certainly are not alone with this feeling. The constant news cycle always making us feel like everything that happens is of immense importance, and our nation's unhealthy obsession with putting all of our hope in politics rather than God is something that infects all of us from time to time. It's a blessing that you paid attention to yourself and realized that this feeling of anxiety over politics has impacted your ability to do the other things you need to do in life and even has kept you from experiencing the things that bring you joy because this is the best way of determining that it's time to do something about it. So let's look at psychology today for some tips with this, huh? It's easy to see how a high-stakes event like the upcoming election encourages both worry and pathological reassurance-seeking. With an internet connection and fewer outside distractions due to the pandemic, it has never been easier to get sucked into a 24-7 news cycle. There's nothing to stop us from browsing a polling website for hours, hitting refresh repeatedly to see the latest numbers. If you desperately need someone to reassure you that the forecast is favorable, you have instant access to to your favorite news outlet, to partisan commentators, and to the social media echo chamber. Of course, while looking for this kind of reassurance, you're never more than a click away from negative or pessimistic information or even a heated argument with someone on the other side. One of the most obvious strategies is to change or reduce our media consumption. These days, a total media blackout isn't really possible, but if you think carefully, you can probably identify a few specific websites, TV shows, or channels, or social media platforms that you check compulsively while looking for positive news. Uh, identify these places, and limiting your access is probably a good place to start. 
In these complicated times, it's helpful to examine any potential political activity along two axes. Before you turn on the TV or submit that comment to Facebook, there are two questions to ask. Politically, am I actually accomplishing something meaningful that will promote my cause? Are my actions productive or unproductive? And what is the personal cost of this activity? Is it healthy or stressful? Viewed through this lens, uh, I suspect much of our political engagement in the coming months may be revealed as both stressful and unproductive. Arguing in person or with strangers online or fixating on the news for hours when nothing of consequence has happened. If you can identify and reduce these stressful, unproductive activities, you'll have more time and energy for genuinely productive activities like donating to a cause, making phone calls for a campaign, or contacting friends and loved ones with support and encouragement. Even unproductive activities are still preferable as long as they're healthy. Since it won't change the outcome of the election either way, getting a good night's sleep is obviously a better choice than staying up late with eyes glued to the television or screen. And if you find you're having a hard time with making these changes on your own, this is me again, remember that it's always a good idea to reach out for therapy, even if only for a few sessions, to get some practice and get back on track. I hope that helps. Annabelle wraps us up. I was hoping for some advice on how best to support a close coworker who just got news at her ultrasound appointment that they could not detect a heartbeat. My heart is broken for her and her family. Let's all stop what we're doing, please, and, and pray for her friend, her beautiful baby, her family, and all of her friends, and everyone who is trying to figure out how to be a good support in this incredibly unfair and difficult situation. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. Thank you for sending this in, Annabelle, and thank you for being the caring person that you are. Many of those listening have experienced this situation in their own lives. My family, as most of you probably know, has walked through this dark valley as well, and it's uh, just such a blessing to know that there are people out there like you ready to figure out how to best help in a situation where offering the right kind of help can feel impossible. There's, there's really a million things that I could say here, um, but to, to help keep our thoughts focused, I'm going to go with something from uh, AmericanPregnancy.org. Listen, listen, listen. A person who has experienced a miscarriage may need to tell his or her story repeatedly. Show your care by your attentiveness, gestures, and eye contact. Be prepared to talk about the baby. Hearing others say the name helps a grieving person heal. Know when to be silent. Sometimes it's best to say nothing at all. A grieving person may just want someone to listen. <clears throat> Be aware that grief has physical reactions as well as emotional, emotional reactions on the body. Physical reactions include poor appetite, disturbed sleep patterns, restlessness, low energy, and other pain. Emotional reactions might include panic, persistent fear, nervousness, nightmares. Encourage your friend or family member to call you or to reach out when they experience these feelings. 
Encourage the grieving person to express pain and stress by working through feelings such as anger, guilt, sadness, doubt, and frustration. The normal process of grief and healing occurs. Continue to encourage communication. Understand that grief is an individual process that is bound by no exact time frame. This frame of time involves finding ways of living with memories and the pain associated with the loss. Reassure the grieving person that their feelings and reactions are normal and necessary for healing. Remember that specific dates or events such as anniversaries of the loss or the expected due date might trigger an emotional response and encourage communication during this time, perhaps like a card or some small way of remembering. So for me again here, one last thing that I think helps is instead of saying, let me know if there's anything I can do for you, just do something. When we're grieving, we can't, we can't possibly think of what we need, let alone reach out for help to all the people who say, just give me a call when you need something, right? We just can't verbalize our needs. So I've always found the best approach is to say, I'm bringing over dinner rather than let me know if I can do anything. It's just so much easier and so much more helpful for the person suffering. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna. <laughs>